those are. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Studs Terkel. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a dive into what they do for a buck. The community developing around Studs brings me tremendous joy. In our collective moment of despair and disconnection, y'all have inspired me. So thank you. Just thank you for your kindness and for all your encouragement. As the days get shorter and the holidays get closer, we're doing the best we can over here to stay safe and sane and in reasonably good spirits despite the circumstances. I still have the pleasure and the peril of good hard work. I still get to share a classroom with my students. And while that puts me at great risk, it keeps me whole and humbled. And after the school day is done and my daughter is fed and off to bed, it's my pleasure to get behind this microphone, don some headphones, and get into someone else's workspace. If you enjoy our empathic explorations into working lives, please share studs with your people. And if you're a loyal listener, and if you like to support independent creators, please support studs. I just launched a Patreon page. It's patreon.com backslash studs. I link to it in the show notes. Look, I promise to keep studs free for you. And I'm not going to pressure you to drop your hard-earned scratch on my podcast. But if you dig studs, and you want to do your part to keep it going, well, I offer some pretty, pretty, pretty cool rewards to studs patrons. So check it out patreon.com backslash studs. Now, whether or not you choose to patronize studs, you got a lot to look forward to in season three as we dive into the working lives of a firefighter, a midwife, a surgical nurse, and many more. I hope you enjoy the ride. Now, this episode of Studs features my conversation with Todd Greenstein. Todd owns and operates a small business that has evolved from providing Santa and Easter sets for malls to a focus on offering cute train rides around the mall to even cuter little kids, like mine. Todd talks about the challenges and opportunities of small business ownership in the age of big business, and his approach to hiring the right people and keeping them on board. And of course, we dig into some of the peculiarities of the Santa racket. So I hope you enjoy my deep dive into the working life of my favorite mall rat, Mr. Green. Todd Greenstein, welcome to Studs. Thank you so much for making time for me. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Now, in my mind's eye, you own the Easter Bunny, you own Santa Claus, and you happen to own a bunch of toy trains that travail them all. How do you describe what you do? I own and operate kids' train rides and shopping centers. And how did you get on this career path? Well, it's a kind of a long path, but uh, midway through college, I was mountain biking in a local forest preserve and wiped out pretty bad and cut my leg open so severely that I couldn't go back to the fall semester. And then when I was recovering... My mom saw an ad in the local newspaper that said, be a Santa Claus at the local mall. It pays well. And I said to her, no, not a (laughs) chance. I'm not doing that. And she said, well, you were Santa once for your friend's mother who owned a staffing company when you were a sophomore in high school. I said, mom, that was for an hour or two at a mall that frequented by mostly Jewish people. So I don't think I even had a visitor (laughs) uh, for the two or three hours I was there. She said, well, why don't you call this phone number and maybe the owner of this company has some other work for you to do. And so I called and I spoke with a man named Bert Chotner. He and his wife, Barb, Bert and Barb owned this company that had a few train rides and shopping centers throughout the Midwest, providing the photography to when the kids visit Santa and providing the Santa Clauses as well. And also for three weeks during Easter, providing the Easter Bunny at the mall and the people taking the photos and moving the lines of visitors through. 
So he met with me. We talked a little bit and got to know each other at, at a local restaurant. So that's how it kind of started. So you meet this guy, Bert, at a restaurant. And do you recall like hitting it off with him? I don't know. I think I just turned 20 years old. Did you feel a connection to him? I just thought he was an interesting guy. He he was the COO of a major, major Chicago uh, hospital for many years. And when he left that, he was looking for something to pay the bills and, and have an income from. And that was back in 1988. And he and his wife were walking around a Chicagoland Mall one day and saw a long line, people in line to see Santa or the Easter Bunny. And they noticed people were complaining about the quality of their portraits. Weeks later, they contacted uh, the mall management company and said, how about we do this service? It sounds as though people might not be satisfied with it. And they said, sure, we'll let you do this one mall. And then the next holiday season, a few months later, they gave them three or four. And then it just uh, ballooned and, and the ball kept rolling. And after a year or two or three, maybe they had eight or 10, 12 at one time we, we did business in. Now you and Bert seemed to really strike up a relationship. You kind of became his right-hand man, so to speak. Is that fair to say? Sure. We spent a lot of time together. And when you work alongside someone, and my wife still to this day laughs at me because we shared a desk in a, you know, whatever it was, 10 by 20 office room. And we had one decent sized desk. He'd sit on one side, I'd sit on the other. And we'd work on whatever it was together, uh, ideas or concepts or things we needed to, to do. I remember the first time my, my wife, Kim, came to the office and she, we left and she said, why do you guys share a desk? That's pretty odd. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> and in retrospect, maybe it, it was, but we did everything together. And business partnership has to be like a marriage, a lot of communication or things can get jumbled. I mean, I guess it doesn't matter so much, but I guess I'm trying to figure out how it is that you went from uh-huh. being the dude that met him <laughs> at a restaurant to becoming his right-hand man and sharing an office with him. When I was about to graduate, Bert said to me, well, what do you think about what we discussed? And I said, what do you mean what we discussed? I guess I wasn't paying close attention one, <laughs> one day over, over lunch. My mind must have been elsewhere. He said, well, I kind of asked you if you'd be interested in working with me. I said, oh, you mean like full time after I graduate? And he said, well, how about we'll talk about it tomorrow or the next day and I'll put together some type of uh, pay package for you and tell you what what I can offer. When we met the next uh, the next time, he said, OK, how about we'll pay you X amount this first year? I'll cover your car expenses your gas, insurance, et cetera, and we'll give you a bonus after Easter, bonus after Christmas. And then the second year, we'll, you'll get a little bump in your salary, and we'll still pay for all these other things. And then your third year, you'll get this much. So at least you have a, an idea, a path. Then after that, we'll talk more. And so I said, yeah, that's, that sounds fair. So we agreed. So I always had the sense that Bert saw something in 20-year-old Todd Greenstein. And from that very first meeting, he saw something in you that he longed for. He was probably 60 years old at the time. And he recognized something in you. And he had ambitions for you before you were aware of that. Do you think that's well fair to say? He saw that I worked hard. I got along with everybody within his organization. I was willing to work long hours, even through college. Once he hired me, I didn't pay too much attention to my studies during the uh, six-week period of, of Christmas or the three, four-week period of Easter. I'd work eight, 10, 12, 14 hour days, almost every day for five days in a row. And then I'd come back to school and attend the classes I needed to and take the tests I had to. And then I'd go 
over a weekend. I'd work all Friday, Saturday, Sunday for 10 hours a day. And there were times when something would go wrong and I'd have to, right as I was about to get home, whenever that was at eight, nine or at night, he'd call me and say, uh, something happened at whatever mall. You have to drive there. You have to do X, Y, Z and take care of it. And I could be out there till midnight. So that happened many times, but it was worth it. I just put my head down and worked hard. I didn't really know any different. He respected your work ethic. I think so. And you all struck up kind of a beautiful friendship, it yes, seemed. Yes, he and his uh, family were very kind to me and took me in as theirs. He introduced me to racquetball, which is my favorite sport. And we started doing that two or three mornings a week. He had cancer when he was in his 20s and uh, had an eye removed. It was incredible. He, he was able to drive golf. He was a decent golfer. He was able to hit the racquetball, and no one would know. You know, occasionally he'd cross over the dotted line on the highway, but I'd, <laughs> I'd nudge him, and he'd get back in his lane. But, uh, no, he was an incredible man. And at some point, you realized that you were in line to carry on his legacy, huh? Yeah, yeah. He'd be about 80 years old now. I don't know when he turned around 60. We signed a a contract stating, okay, over the next three years, I'll take over the business more and more. He didn't need it anymore. He was ready to spend all of his time with his family. He uh, He was a good friend to you. And he had lost a son. Yes. I recall. And it seemed like in some ways, like, you know, you can never replace a loved one. But it seemed like the relationship that you and he developed, it, it was seemed like it was both a father-son and a, and a fraternal relationship. Is that fair to say? Yeah, we loved one another, and we worked alongside each other, and we understood each other because, uh, like siblings who spent years and years together, and uh, you get to know one another very well. I think I would be remiss if I didn't share with our listeners this little fun fact. His name is Bert, and y'all were very close. And in the early aughts, you got a dog. Yes. And what do you name your dog? Uh, We named him Ernie. (laughs) (laughs) My wife and I are probably the only people who really have ever joked about this, but we... They'd say, oh, I'm with Bert during the day and Ernie at night. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So what year about did you take over the business in full? Sure. It was uh, fall 94 is when I met him. And then I think when he signed it over to me, it was uh, 2006, I believe. Okay, so you got a dozen years working side by side with this guy. Let's talk about the early years of the business. Sure. So there's three parts to the business, as I understand it, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong. You got the Santa Claus gig, you got the Easter Bunny gig, and then you have the trains that run year round, but particularly they run a little extra around the holidays. Let's talk about those in turn. Can you talk a little bit about how you manage a Santa Claus or an Easter Bunny set? Like, what goes on behind the scenes of this kind of peculiar American tradition? <laughs> it is. And I never understood it, but I didn't mind benefiting from it. <laughs> <laughs> Being Jewish, I was the only guy he could find who would work on uh, Easter, Friday, and Saturday, and <laughs> Christmas Eve. <laughs> And find a bunch of Jewish buddies on Christmas Eve who are willing to make, you know, $100, $200 driving around from mall to mall. I was one of them year after year. Picking up photo equipment, costumes. We'd have five giant rider trucks <laughs> driving from place to place around the suburbs. Uh-huh. Remember that? Mall yeah. to mall. Yeah. Big fat truck. Yep. <laughs> Empty yeah. highway. Yes. Yes. So... Tell me about what how you set up a Santa Claus set and like how that how that whole thing unfolds. First, you have to have the contract with the mall. Then you 
need to uh, discuss with them when you're bringing in everything and find an empty store within the mall. They let you use that for the two months. And then you uh, find all the product and photo equipment you need. You have to make sure everything's working before you deliver it. Then you have to find staffing. You need to find people to play these characters. That's that's a 10-minute story right there. How? Well, let's get to it. How do you hire a Santa Claus? Let's start there. It was great if you could find someone with a real beard because people would maybe buy some more photos or be more likely to purchase them. It's not really the kids who care because when you're a firm believer in, in Santa, you really don't question if he has a fake yak beard or <laughs> or a real one. <laughs> but at the time, it was pre-internet, really, pre-Craigslist. It was word of mouth where you place the one-inch ad in the local newspaper and you crossed your fingers that people would respond. If that didn't work, you told people to ask everyone at church or every one of their neighbors until you could find someone to do it. If you have 10, 12 malls, you probably need 45, 50 men to play Santa Claus. So you could march out someone who's 150 pounds and not a kid would know. And then that person was done with their shift after, let's say, four hours. And then the next person you'd march out to be Santa Claus. So the person on the the Santa seat needs to exit, go into the empty store in the mall 100 yards away from the kids. Out comes another guy who might be 100 pounds heavier with a real beard. And you'd see the the parents kind of chuckle and smile at one another. And imagine a five, six, seven-year-old. They don't know. There's like a willful suspension of disbelief among everyone around the holidays and the and you know the kids in particular like they want to believe it because it's a it's there's something beautiful about it. Sure. So at its peak in the in the late 90s sure. early aughts, how many malls did you have a Santa Claus in? 12 or 13 malls with Santas and at the same time I think at the most at one Christmas we had 10 trains operating. And it's an insane time of year. Yes. Stresses are up. The malls were packed. Yes. And and people had expectations and they needed that thing to go smoothly, right? Like yes. so I remember the lines. I remember sort of like that anxiousness that filled the air. And you, I believe, took Santa photos or Easter photos one or two seasons, maybe three, when you were nineteen years old, maybe. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I was in the mix. I was willing to. T- I was willing to take your Santa money. <laughs> yeah. But there was this palpable sense of tension, like you know, everyone around the holiday times, everyone's a little amped up, and it's enthusiastic. But it's also when you're dealing with kids, there's exhaustion. How do you manage a Santa set in light of? the controlled chaos and the massive anxieties that everyone in line feels. You hope that you hire good people who won't flip out on customers. Yeah, you know, 90% of shoppers, whether they're going into Macy's or in line for Santa photos are pleasant. And there's, there's that small percentage who are on edge because they have anxiety for their child's visit and you just hope you have the right employees because there's a slew of stories I can tell you another time or whenever about customers doing the wrong things as well as employees believe me so I have to ask give me your favorite story of a Santa set going awry there's always the stories of high schoolers running up to the Easter bunny and smacking its head off another one in uh, Harlem Irving Plaza in the north side of Chicago. The young girl who was in the Easter bunny costume had a diabetic issue and she fell down off the bench and all these kids were crying because the head rolled off and the paramedics came and their parents ran them to the other end of the mall. Oh my God. I mean, I can go on the, the Santa stories, you know, the child asks for, let's say a horse or a dog and Santa says, not a chance you're getting that. What do you think your parents are going to buy you that? Or, or what, how am I going to get that on my sleigh? You're not getting that. <laughs> or the, 
a young, let's say a five-year-old boy says, I'd like a Barbie doll. The person playing Santa, you know, it's an older gruff guy who's, he's a lovely person. I know him, but he, he didn't really mean it. He, I don't think he knew any better, but he said, why are you asking for a Barbie doll? Don't you want like a Tonka truck? Something like that. And the parent got so mad and hey, hey, hey. tells mall management. And then I'd have to call the parents and say, I'm, you know, and basically apologize over and over and say, this is out of character with this person. I don't know what just happened. I, I really apologize because you have to make it right. I don't know where to end with these stories, Dan. There's so many. <laughs> really, really. Yeah, I'd imagine. But I mean, I think I, I think the the heart of it is what you had said before, which is that you have a vested interest in hiring employees who can manage yes. these almost unmanageable situations. Yes. And I'd be interested in hearing you talk about that a little bit. So you have to hire, you know, 50 Santas. And then you have to, you know, people who are taking photos and people who are managing the line and people who are managing it all. And all of these people are, you know, seasonal employees who are notoriously difficult. Sure. So, like, can you talk about, like, how many employees you have to hire at peak mall times? Like, give me the numbers first and maybe, like, how that's changed over time. Keep this quick, but let's say you've got 10 malls. You need four or five, six people to play Santa because the mall's open or the lines are open to visit him 75 hours a week for six weeks. So you have that end of it. Then you need a manager person who can do most all the hiring and you need, I don't know, up to 10 people. If, if you don't have four people who want to work 30 or 40 hours a week, uh, then you need to find a dozen people who are willing to work, let's say 15 and they come and go. They have to quit for various reasons. They have to get fired for several reasons <laughs> and uh, some don't pan out. So if you have 10 malls, you might hire up to 300 people between Christmas and Easter. And you hope that the majority of them are returning employees who just love it for the six weeks of Christmas and let's say three or so, four weeks of Easter time. And they just come back year after year, whether it's two years or six years or, or more. And that makes it a lot easier. And then they hire the others. So it really helps when you have good, let's say management or, or leadership at a local level with, and they take a lot of the load off your back. So you got one or two managers at, at each of the malls. Yes. And they have a lot of sovereignty, and you have to really depend on them to, to manage, right? And so you have a sort of chain of command. In hiring the mall managers, but also in hiring rank-and-file employees at these malls. Can you talk a little bit about what you've learned about hiring wisely? Because you've hired a lot of people. Yeah. You fired a bunch, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's hard, but when you find a good one, you have to figure out any way to, to keep that man or woman uh, coming back season after season or in my current business, just keep them on and keep them happy or satisfied with their position and keep their stress level as low as possible. You need to find dedicated people, people with positive attitudes, people who are friendly, have a nice smile, people who could solve problems and lead on their own. Just good, good, solid people to do whatever the workload is. And when they do it right, everything goes smoothly and nicely. And when they make foolish decisions, it, it makes your life uh, challenging. Can you talk a little bit about how you hire? Because these aren't high-skilled jobs. These are jobs that basically anyone can apply for. Yeah. There's no resume per se that they need to bring to the table. So you have this vast pool of people who are invited to apply for the job. How do you separate the wheat from the shaft to determine who's going to be worth interviewing? In, in some cases, 
you get real lucky and you can hire someone to do the, the manager position right away. And in some cases, one time, uh, St. Louis area, 15 years ago, there's, there's a story for every location, how I found the right person. But um, Bert and I went down there and and we met five or 10 people and the person we picked who we thought was going to be great. We said, okay, you're, you'll be hired. We're going to drive home five hours now. And then the next day he said, I'm not interested. Well, the previous day he was jumping for joy. So, so then you hire the next person in line over the phone. You say, okay, we met with you. We thought you were great. Let's try this out. So that person starts out and within three days, you know, no way this person is not well suited for this job. And then you have to drive to the location. In this case, I think I just met Kim. So Bert and Barb took a road trip to St. Louis for a day or two. And they ended up hiring the third or fourth person in line who just applied to press the button on a train that went in circles around a track at the time. And she happened to be a preschool teacher for many years, great personality, wonderful woman, still works for or with me now, maybe 15 years later. And she's, she's been wonderful. She's overseen five locations in the St. Louis area for me over the years, one at a time, sometimes two. And she was a great fit, but we didn't know uh, until, um, until she was there for a couple of weeks. Hmm. So I guess that leads me to another curiosity I have, which is, how you keep your best employees coming back year after year to work at a Santa set or an Easter bunny set. Um, what's the trick to keeping talented people who can do yeah. the work with a smile and be reliable? Right. I don't know if it's so much of a trick. I think you just treat people with respect and dignity and, and uh, you just have to cross your fingers. You find the right people and, you know right away if they're into the position or if they enjoy it. You you see it in their work right away, and this is probably for any any job. But to find the right ones, sometimes they just walk in on their position. At a mall, of, I had a young woman being the scheduling manager person there, and it did. Let's just say it didn't work out, <laughs> and this guy. He was there just driving this train around the mall. I had only met him once for a minute. And it turns out he had a great corporate career running like Brunswick bowling alleys across the country or some, or the, or the professional bowling league. <laughs> and he had years of, of experience and bright man. And, and he's been doing it now for, I don't know, six years. And he happens to be a guy who was <laughs> into trains in his basement and the train club thing. So it, it's right up his alley and he works whether it's five or 10 hours a week and he does the scheduling and, and he loves it. This is an impossible question to give an accurate answer to, but if you could just use your decades of experience to throw a number out, yeah, what percent of the employees that you have the pleasure of working with are at the Santa or Easter set because they just, really love that environment and if they can make a couple bucks great but really it's just a labor of love one man who was santa for 15 years vietnam veteran saw awful things chicago police chief for many many years he did it and he would collect his checks from my company and he was Santa in, let's say, a, a very affluent area of Chicago. And he'd go to individuals' homes the week before Christmas, one or two a night, and they'd give him, I don't even know, two, three, four, or five hundred dollars, possibly more in a few instances. And he would tell me year after year, hey, Todd, I collected $9,000 or even 12000 And I gave it all to this charity to help children with a certain disease. And he was doing it out of the kindness of his heart because he said he saw things in, in Vietnam and witnessed things that made him want to give back. Hmm. 
And so there's enough of those stories where you know that there are a bunch of people who work for your company who do it because like this is their way to be charitable and to engage with people. Sure, sure. You got a lot of stories like that. There, there were several Santas like that. One was a psychiatrist at a, a major prison in northern Chicago, and he did that full-time, bright man. And then he'd be a Santa twice a week. Just I don't think he needed the money. He just enjoyed it, and there are many stories like that. I haven't been in the Santa business now for three years, and uh, prior to that, I had many malls that uh, went by the wayside due to many reasons. So I actually, I want to get to the other stuff, but before we pivot to the way your, your business has evolved, can you talk about what it's like to manage a, a Santa set at a mall or an Easter bunny set at the mall? Like, what is that work? What makes it hum? You gave some stories about when it goes, you know, terribly wrong. Yeah. But what makes it work? What makes it work? Well, uh, there's maybe two halves. One is visitors have to be in good moods. Not not the children, but the parents have to come through the line with a smile and want to be there. And the other half might be the guy playing Santa Claus who needs to be in a good mood because it's quite visible if he's not. And everyone coming through notices. And it's up to you to hire people who smile and just play along. And it's up to the customer to like sort of suspend their disbelief and sure play nice, right? Sure. Believe me, 99.9% .9 of the time, everything is fine. And it's a nice experience, a quick interaction. Sometimes the sands are short with words. Imagine sitting in a chair for some guys would sit there for four or five hours without using the washroom or running to the, the storage room to just catch their breath or wipe the sweat off their brows. And so my advice is to visit Santa when, when he first gets there <laughs> shortly after, because once you're there for two hours with kids nonstop on your lap, if it's a busy weekend day, uh, Sands are people too, and and they get grumpy and irritable. So speaking of grumpy and irritable, I will confess to you that nothing makes me as grumpy and irritable as an American mall. Yes, and you have carved out a career in and around the American mall. What does it feel like to be in a mall? Because your experience with a mall is really unique. Yes. And you drive from mall to mall. Yes. A lot. Sure. Sure. Do you like the mall? I don't dread going in them. I feel at home in them, I guess. Malls are, were, or were the hub or meeting place of America at one time. Not so much now, but, you know, when we were kids or even 15, 20 plus years ago, uh, that's where teens would go to meet each other and just hang out and walk around. And maybe that's where two families would meet and shop together and go out to TGI Fridays or, or wherever near the mall. And it's not so much that now. You see a lot in, in the malls. It's a cross section of, of the public. You see the best and the worst in humanity in the malls. You see a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you do. You don't dread going into the mall. But, I mean, I'm asking you honestly. Like, do you find joy and or interest in the American mall? Or at this point, is it just like your place of work? You go in and get a job done and, and you try not to think about it too much. At this point... I go in, I speak with my employees, whether it be five minutes or sometimes I'll hang out for an hour or two and, and uh, just chat employees or colleagues. If you don't spend time getting to know them a little bit more, 
you can miss out on some important things that might be happening in their lives that can guide you to what their needs may be. You know, they reveal private information that can help you help them. What do you have in mind when you say that? Can you give an example of what you mean by that? Well, yeah. When, when you have a lot of employees, let's say 30, 40 people on a payroll, and you go in somewhere and the person who's your most important employee at that location says, well, I have to t- be honest with you, Todd, I've been having troubles at home. I know it's personal. I didn't want to tell you, but I, I feel like I have to tell you so you understand why I can't work the next three days. And I'll say, it's fine. I'm sorry. And say, okay, find someone working with you here to fill your position till you return, whether it's a health issue or an abusive issue or their cars aren't working. And sometimes you can find creative ways to, to help that person, which sometimes is, is a perk of being in a position to, to help those who you employ. Can you give an example of a time where you learned that an employee of yours was going through a rough patch and you helped them to smooth it out? Well, recently someone said, well, my husband doesn't work, live with me, my daughter anymore. Grandma moved in. Uh, it was an abusive situation. And all, all you can do is feel for them and talk a little bit and say, you know, we can adjust your schedule, whatever works for you. We need you here. You're an important part of the machine and whatever helps you helps us because you're, you're an important employee or another, I don't know when this was five years ago. Uh, I had a key employee who, whose car kept breaking down and she was driving from location to location for me with me. And she was an important person to me because she took a lot of stress off my shoulders. And at the time, my family had a minivan and this single mother had several children. I gave her the car. I was driving the minivan at the time and it had, I don't know, 60,000 miles. And, and I knew she needed something reliable to not just help her family, but help my business. Because if she couldn't get around, then it wasn't helping me. So it helped both of us. It makes you feel good and it, it helps, helps people in need. And the most important part is this person, in my opinion, earned a, a nice car. That's awesome, man. I didn't know about that. That's really kind of you. I guess that's maybe one of the perks of being a small business owner is that it does give you an opportunity to get to know people. And when the opportunity presents itself, you do have, because you have a successful small business, the, uh, a chance to really help them out. And it's really heartening to hear that. But I know that particularly these days, the challenges of owning a small business are very real Can you talk a little bit about the challenges and the stresses, but also, you know, maybe some more of those opportunities of small business ownership? There's, there's always challenges. There's always stresses. When things are going well, it's like a uh, machine that runs itself. And you just hope that your employees are safe. And sometimes things can hit the fan all at once and you need to find a few employees to make everything easier on your management. You put in some pretty crazy hours. Sure. Sometimes around Christmas and Easter, particularly in the early days. And you're driving in traffic (laughs) and you basically have a limited window to make your bottom line, right? You have a couple weeks around Christmas, a couple weeks around Easter. And if those months don't go right, it poses some real challenges. It puts a real stress on the company. Was that hard to uh, deal with psychologically or emotionally? When you have a lot of things going on at once, 
sometimes it helps to have a personality that doesn't stress out over everything because you can really lose your hair at a young age. Hey, 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 easy now. I'm not saying anything. Some, not, not that there's anything wrong with that. Right. Yeah. I'm almost there. So, uh, but you can really pull your hair out quickly if you let everything get under your skin. And when you have so many things going on in different places or different employees, not everyone is going to perform the way you want them to. You can set your expectations high, but things are going to happen. So you just have to find the right leaders who want a unique, in this case, very unique job. They have to be a perfect fit. You know, the worst is when you've tried so hard with, let's say, an account or location in my case, and everything's going great. And then one person does something so ridiculous. And in my case, mall management notices, and then they contact you and say, what is wrong with your business? What's wrong with these people you hire? And when they, they say these people, it's usually just one bad apple. And you approach that person and cut off the bleeding. Yeah, I'd imagine it to be really stressful. Now, invariably, we were going to have to talk about this. Uh, your business has been subject to some changes. Um, some of them are forces out of your control. Others were decisions that you made. But the digital camera and then the smartphone with the built-in camera didn't really do you any favors, right? Back in the 80s and 90s, Bert and Barb were able to make a ton of money out of selling you know, basically nice quality Polaroid images of kids with Santa the Easter Bunny at a pretty nice markup. Yeah, um, sure. And then you really couldn't do that anymore. And then the mall changed, right? Like sure. Amazon, et cetera. And that's, you know, and if we want to later, we could talk about the impact of COVID on, on, on your business if you feel like it. Is it the case that it was these changes that challenged you to pivot from the Santa and Easter Bunny racket to the uh, train racket? Right. Well, the trains were always there, the old school ones on the tracks that are in I don't know how many malls across the country, maybe not that many. Those were first around in mid eighties, maybe. And there's still a few out there, but the trackless trains are out there now. It's just a, a retail business in my mind. At its peak, how many malls did you have a, a, a Santa and Easter Bunny? You said 12 or 15 different malls. Yeah. Tw- yeah. About a dozen. Sure. And how many you got now? Yeah, yeah. Well, none. Did you want to stay in the Santa and Easter business, or did you want out? Well, three years ago, I made the decision, and uh, I could have continued doing it that year, but I think it just gave me uh, anxiety. My job is to troubleshoot or find out what's not working or deal with a problem. Half the time when I enter a mall, it would be because... I just have to go and check up on things. And the other half was to resolve a problem. They're out of my control. And it's not enjoyable. It wasn't enjoyable. So now you got no Santa, no Easter Bunny, but you do a year-round trackless train business. In how many malls do you have trackless trains right now? Trackless ones, seven. Still got a couple uh, trains on tracks? Yeah, one or two. What is the mall train business like? Well... For those who haven't been in a mall, the malls are kind of empty with people going in to grab one or two things on weekdays. People or nannies or grandparents or mom's groups take their kids in for a pretzel or go to the play area of the mall and waste an hour or two in the morning, something to do, somewhere to socialize during the week. And on weekends, in most malls until uh, March this year, they're very busy. And it's nonstop families with their little kids who, who see the train. It looks bright and fun, and they point, and they, the parents give them a ride. Some parents get on board with their kids. 
And, uh, you know, it's nice to see smiles on kids' faces. Do you enjoy it? There are people who love it, and I love having those people on uh, on my staff. But maybe a year ago, something happened where the employee couldn't show up, and it was going to be a very busy Saturday. So I drove the train around for five hours or so. And I remember it must have been a Saturday night because we went to a neighbor's house and some neighbors were there having, having a drink and I got there and I sat at their kitchen table and I sat in the chair and someone gave me a, a drink and I just couldn't move. And I was exhausted. I don't know how many people I spoke with that day, but it must've been a hundred, 200 people, you know, 30 second conversations and driving this silly train around in a circle in this extremely busy mall <laughs> for five hours it makes you understand it might sound silly but how strenuous it can be working in a retail environment so it helps you understand what your employees are going through if if you actually do what they do every now and then it helps you learn what what to make better how to improve certain things i get the sense that you're really interested in in business and how to how to streamline things and make them more effective. Like, is that... Yeah, so I think what I enjoy the most are some of the challenges of finding a new account or getting a phone call from, let's say, a leasing agent in mall management at a mall that I pursued for a few years, whether it's sending an email or just stopping in the office to say, hi, I'm out here if you need my company's service and within your center. And then finally getting a, an email or a phone call saying, oh, my regional director that oversees, who oversees a lot of malls, thinks that you'd be a good fit in this mall. And we'd like you to start as soon as you want. Uh, that brings a smile to my face. Is there still joy in it for you? Or is it just work at this point? That's a tough question. I guess I, I'm kind of curious because, you know, the scene that you're supposed to support is a joyous one, right? It's for kids and it's their moment and it's all supposed to be fun. Yeah. But a lot of what you have to do to make that fun happen is maybe not so fun, right? Well, I guess you're, it's kind of, you just made me think of, a circus where yeah. everyone works hard at their craft and the lion tamers working behind the scenes doing a lot of things and you put on a show or provide that service i guess it's an an act this is something we told employees years ago when they help out with the the characters at the malls or even train rides you're like an actor you don't have to Act a lot, just smile, be polite, be friendly. That's all we ask. As we discussed, between digital photography and the smartphone and then Amazon and now COVID, the American mall just isn't what it used to be. And like, though the malls were a hallmark of our upbringing, the American mall was really... You know, born in the 1930s, it was actually an Austrian guy who, you know, built one of the first malls as we know them uh, in Minnesota, trying to recreate the European town square. So the mall is really like, you know, less than a century old, we'll say. And the mall as we know it really didn't develop until we were growing up. There have been no shortage of elegies written for the American mall. What do you see as the future of the American mall and then maybe your place in it? I see them having a lot of trouble and, and they have had trouble competing with Walmart and Target and of course, Amazon, eBay, etc. These department stores are having a lot of trouble and many malls as well but there are a lot of malls that are in great areas where there's a 
dense population and those malls will be okay. They'll just transition to more entertainment, restaurants, dining, open areas, open outdoor, outdoor beer gardens, concerts. There are a lot of different ways the malls are, are changing themselves. And the ones in very rural areas will just close eventually. Many have already, hundreds have, and only the best ones will remain. And they'll be in metropolitan areas with where there's money to be spent and people to frequent them on weekends. It's almost like the people who need them the least are going to have them the most, right? Sure. Like the people out in central Iowa who have nothing to do will have one less thing to do. I guess I wonder, though, if you have developed over your decades in the malls uh, a soft spot for them. Will you miss the mall as we know it? Are we losing something in losing the malls as we know them? People are socializing virtually now. FaceTime, movie theaters attached to malls or on the perimeter of malls. Those are in danger. It's just a, a different environment now. I'm finding myself, I was never a mall guy, but just listening to you talk about it. You're I'm, nostalgic. Well, I don't want to find myself in the position of making what is essentially a conservative, if not conservationist argument. I never liked the mall. Sure. But the way you're describing it, it makes me pine for it or mourn its loss in a way. Right. I think I know what you're getting at. I've known you long enough. A couple years ago, you were visiting me, and we went into, we don't have to say the name, but into a major mall. Your daughter rode the train around, had a nice time, and you went into a restaurant that was selling trinkets and teddy bears. And I can't recall, you wanted to possibly eat there, and the person said, no, there's a wait. Why don't you walk around our shop and look at the little teddy bears for your daughter while we look to see if there's room for you here. Meanwhile, you, you walked out towards me and said, what, there's three people dining and there's 50 tables in, in there. So they were trying to get you to buy their junk, right? And you said, what is this? So why does someone want to go into a mall and be treated like that? When, when you can look at your iPhone, press two buttons, and your product is delivered to your door at probably half the price 24 hours later with no stress. So that's that's what malls are dealing with. Well, I don't know what the future of the mall is, but I do know that I love stories. I'd like you to tell me the story of one professional triumph, and if you would be so kind, one professional failure. How about you start with the failure so we could end on a note of triumph? It's hard not to look in the rearview mirror, right, and wonder what could have been. There was a time, there were one or two leasing people from major mall ownership company, and they said, how about you start up? Here's a list of a dozen malls I want you to start in, and I think this trackless train idea is a great idea. Kind of turned it down. Hmm. <laughs> and I thought it, it was too much stress. Maybe I was too young at the time. I was, I was probably 30 years old. I didn't have like a right-hand person to do all the dirty work that I, at the time, probably didn't want to do or couldn't fathom handling. My business could have been two or three times its size, but I don't think I was prepared to handle the work. And in retrospect, I could have done it if I had just thought things through differently or I had to drive at that particular time. Everything needs to line up to handle a lot of stress. Well, you know, your your wife and your kids are lucky that you didn't take it because they get to have more of you. Thanks, Dan. So tell me a story of triumph. Some people will ask me what I do and how long I've done it will say, well, congratulations, you've had a, it seems like you've had success in, in your business for 20-something years. Most small businesses don't last. Something like 90% of them fail within a few years. And so I guess just being consistent and 
persevering through the years is a triumph. I think it is too. And I will tell you that I find your story to be one of triumph. You know, you went from like this little serendipitous moment where you had a terrible accident, very scary. And, you know, totally down on your luck. You had to skip a semester of university and you just meet this guy and you develop a kinship with him and you work assiduously putting in your 80 hour weeks during the holiday seasons when everyone else is able to dial it down, you dial it up. And you've been able to build on that momentum to keep a small business alive for two and a half decades. That is a triumph. And having been to some of these malls and seeing the looks on the kids' faces yeah, and the joy in the eyes of the parents as they watch their kid on the train ride or on Santa's lap or on the Easter Bunny's lap, you do bring joy to people. And it's a whole bunch of work, and I know you don't get to enjoy it the same way that the kids do. But I think there is a, a triumph there. I tell people about you. Yeah, I like telling people about my, my Jewish cousin, Floppy Dog, who <laughs> oh, owns the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus. You know, like I... I I think it's triumphant. I'm super proud of you. I know how hard small businesses are, you know, and so you can enjoy the triumph. Thanks, Dan. I can't let you go without asking you to recommend a guest I can pursue. This could be a specific person or more generally, just like a profession you think uh, you might want to learn more about. So what do you recommend? Who do you recommend? I have a friend. His name's Steve Adams. He's a financial planner. I think what he does is interesting. I like to follow business and stocks and companies just out of interest. And I think he'd be uh, great for your podcast. I need a financial planner. Until or unless this studs podcasting makes me independently wealthy, uh, I think I would need someone to carry me into retirement. And you know, you know, my brother does it too, of course. And I am interested in it. Like, you know, it's sort of like an intimate relationship in a way that you it is develop with people because you have to deal with all of their anxieties and insecurities. And yes, thank you so much for sure for making time to be here with me. Uh, I've had the pleasure of learning about your work over the course of the years, but just sort of like in little snippets here and there. But to like be able to sit down and take a deep dive into what you do it has been a profound source of joy for me. So thanks for sharing. And I hope when this whole ridiculous thing is over, yeah. I can see your pretty mug again. I'm looking forward to that day, Dan. Sooner than later. All right, Toddy. Thanks again. Well, it's been a pleasure. Okay, I'll talk to you soon, okay? Bye-bye. Thank you, Dan. Bye, buddy. Love you. And there you have it, my friends. Just in time for the holidays. My conversation with Todd Greenstein, the sweetest guy in town. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. If you dig what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if studs mean something to you, and you have the means to help, please consider supporting me over at patreon.com backslash studs. I'd like to just seize a moment to wish you and yours happy and healthy holidays as we careen from crisis to crisis in our age of anxiety. I just want to invite you to be kind, to be loving, to be gracious. And without being a fool, be hopeful. Happy holidays to one and all. I wish I could be with you. Mm-hmm.